And our, our kids can head out for Bible adventures now. We'll be starting, starting with, with that after our worship. Thank you to, to our uh, worship team. I'd ask for you to, to pray for me this week. I'm doing the um, prayer retreat that I go on a couple times a year um, to Dallas, in a monastery there. I know it's hard to believe there's a monastery in Dallas, but there is one. Uh, and I just uh, pray that you would uh, pray for me as I have that time and space. And I definitely be thinking and praying for you guys. So please just, just pray for me as I spend uh, that, that week um, doing that. I actually had to, to tell Mandy, I do do some really hard reading, like there's a book called The Dark Night of the Soul, and another title is The Promise of Despair, which uh, my, my daughter picked up. My 10-month-old is like holding up The Promise of Despair. We almost took a picture, but didn't have enough, enough time. And I was like, Mandy, I'm not really in that dark of a place. This is what they told me to read for this thing. This is just like FYI. Uh, but it, we're going to go through some, some really interesting stuff. And many of you are familiar with Randy Harris, who's kind of a, an icon in the uh, Church of Christ. He's a great mentor of mine, so please just pray for me as I'll be uh, there this week. We're continuing our, our series called Pure Joy, where we're thinking about what it means to be people of, of pure joy from the book of Philippians, because Paul writes this letter um, from prison. And if you learn nothing else from this series, I hope you learn that, that Paul writes Philippians, um, the letter to a church in Philippi, as he is in prison in Rome, not sure what's going to happen with his life, unsure about the outcome. And yet he writes, shockingly, with so much joy. Like over and over again, he's saying, I'm rejoicing and I'm filled with joy. And you want to say, Paul, but you're locked up, man. Like, how, how do you continue to write with this perspective? And it's a question that we would all say, like, what, how do you do that? Because my life is complicated sometimes. I can be filled with anxiety. Things can be difficult. Like, how do you continue to have that perspective? And it's not because he just has this pie-in-the-sky mentality. It's because I think he genuinely knows a better way to live. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about shame, which is a topic that we did in, in a Sunday morning class for a few weeks, about two months ago. And it was a topic that many people said, you should preach a little bit about this. And in this passage, I think Paul uh, deals with it in a healthy way. So I want to share a little bit of of that material and some other stuff uh, as well, because shame is the thing that I think continually uh, we deal with. So I want to talk to anybody today who's been embarrassed before, because that's everybody, right? Everybody has been embarrassed. There's times in your life that you could go back to, for me, one that I think of, I was in middle school, and I had gone for, to a middle school that, that did not come from my elementary school, basically. It was kind of on the other side of the track, so nobody really knew um, who I was. And I showed up to middle school, and my mom was a teacher at my middle school, and uh, she then has to tell the kids, like, this is my son, Brian. And I remember, like, reading the role, and it was like Shackman, Brian, and I raised my hand to a room of people that don't know who I am. And then she says, I need to come back to that one. So we get through the rest of the role, and she said, well, it might be kind of obvious, like his last name is Shackman, my last name is Shackman, so this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. No, she didn't say that. Um, she just said, this, this is my son, just kind of to clear the awkwardness. I'm not going to treat him any differently, but just FYI, this is my son. And that's a pretty, in sixth grade, a pretty awkward, horrible way to be introduced to a class. Right? It's like, hey guys, like teacher's son right over here. It's not really a great way. And it was tough in class. I had her for two periods, and you don't really want to call her mom to get her attention. So I kind of settled on, hey you, after a while, because it was kind of a weird a weird relationship, but we figured that out. But I can tell you, I remember what I was wearing. I remember what people said around me, like my face turning a little bit red, and that's always the worst because it turns red and you can't stop it. And then people are looking at you and just like continues this vicious cycle, like, hey, sixth graders, my name's Brian, I'm the teacher's son. It's not really a great feeling. And we all have moments like that that we could go like right back to what we were wearing, 
what was happening. We've all been embarrassed before. And sometimes it's things that we actually participated, that we actually did, that leaves us with some shame. Sometimes it's not. I have a book called The Book of Bizarre Facts, which probably makes sense to you that I have a book called The Book of Bizarre Facts. And it tells this story about a small town in Ohio that published this report. Due to incorrect information received from the Clerk County's office, Diane K. Merchant, 38, was incorrectly listed as being fined for prostitution in Wednesday's paper. The charge should have been failure to stop at a railroad crossing. (laughs) The public opinion apologizes for this error. Diane Merchant's like, I'm not going to go down for this one, guys. Like, this one, it is a small town in Ohio. I need to stand up for myself and correct that issue. And then she's probably walking around to all her friends like, see the correction, everybody. Like, Diane K. Merchant was not uh, involved. This is a very effective way to get people to stop um, running railroad crossings. You know, it's a very odd thing to do. So there are things that, that we have all participated in, perhaps, that we feel ashamed of, but there's also times where things happen and the universe maybe conspires against us and things, um, but yet we still feel shame. So what do we do with shame? What does it look like for us to, as, as Christians, claim perhaps a healthier way to live. And the good news about that is that Scripture talks a lot about shame. I don't think the church has talked as much about the Scripture's talk about shame. Because Genesis opens with this perfect relationship that Adam and Eve have with God and this perfect relationship they have with each other. And Genesis 2 ends with the beautiful phrase, and they were naked and they felt no shame. That they were completely themselves, there's nothing hiding and they feel no shame. And then Genesis 3 happens, and sin enters the world, but it's not just sin. It's shame as well. Really, what happens in Genesis, I believe, at the very beginning, is God gives just just one rule. God says, don't eat off that tree, right? Here's the one rule that you have. Imagine if we could, in our world today, live with just one rule, some of you broke the speed limit rule on the way over here today, right? I mean, some of you like broke the one rule. Imagine all the rules that we have in our world. And God says, there's just one rule. You can't eat off that tree. And more fundamentally, what I believe God is saying right there is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Which is a question that we have to answer all the time. Do you, do we trust God? And one of the ways that I think we have to more fully trust God is dealing with shame. Because if you think about it, the Christian faith is centered on just such a a bizarre thing. Jesus hung on a cross in shame. And generally in our pictures, we cover it back up, but it's likely that he was naked on the cross. Because it was a way publicly to say, don't mess with Rome, because if you do, this is what happens. This is as exposed as you could possibly be. This is as mocked as you could possibly be. And generally, when we think about the cross, we think of it in terms of the pain of the cross. I remember I had a retreat growing up as a youth group member where we spent Friday through Sunday talking about the pain that Jesus endured on the cross. And that is an important thing and something we should think about. We were all like in tears talking about it. It's really important. You probably should think about that. Or maybe you've seen 
the passion of the Christ and that was enough for you because um, you just said, I'm not going to really watch that again because it's, it's horrible to think about when you actually see it. The pain of it is, is miserable. But the New Testament doesn't just talk about the pain. In fact, it focuses, I believe, more on the shame of the cross. There's passages that we generally just read right past that talk about like the soldiers spent all might shaming Jesus. Like they just mocked Jesus. They, they mocked him. They said things about him. And we just read right past those. But imagine what that would have been like. And we have the song that says, you know, he could have called 10,000 angels, right? He could have called down his posse and said, you want to shame me here? Well, here's what I think about that. But Jesus takes that shame. I think it's a beautiful message for all of us. That no matter how shamed you might feel at times, Jesus says, I was too. I felt that too. I know what that's like. The earliest Christians, they experienced that as well. I talked about what middle school was was like for me. There's a, a place around Rome where they found what would have been likely a middle school, and this picture is dated to the third century. Uh, here is a picture, and uh, the, the Greek on there reads, Alex worships his God. And a donkey was meant as a form of, of mockery. So we're not exactly sure what's going on in this picture, but it's likely that this young Christian boy was being mocked because of what he believed in. Have you ever felt embarrassed for being a Christian? If not, then perhaps you're not doing it right. And in today's day and age, and I'm so happy that churches exist where they have, you know, pastors with like a really cool looking mustache and skinny jeans. Like I'm so happy those churches exist. Seriously, I am, and I'm, I'm not going to have skinny jeans myself probably ever, but I don't think they look all that good on me. But we can act, like sometimes in, in, in the name of relevancy, and again, I'm so happy those churches exist, um, in the name of relevancy, we can start to act like it's normal that like God's died publicly naked on a cross. We can start to believe sometimes in the name of relevancy and reaching out that, oh, it's just this, this normal, hey, this cross thing, that's totally normal, but let's get on with life. No, it is a weird thing, right? That God died for us, not only in a painful way, but in a shameful way. What do you do with shame? I'm glad you asked, because that's what I think Philippians has something to share with us about this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Paul, again, is writing from prison to this church. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you may, may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
It's true that some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Again, that word joy comes up as Paul writes, in chains. He's writing to this church, and from the very get-go of this letter, he basically says, there's something I feel like I have to deal with. I'm locked up. And that would have been something that people would have would questioned and wondered. And I have a friend who's a cop, so I got some chains. So I'll show you a little bit of what this might have looked like. And imagine Paul writing this. Perhaps he has one arm more free than the other. We don't know exactly how this looked like. But he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm in chains. From the very beginning of this letter, he's saying, I'm in chains. And this might make you question, you know, is God really on Paul's side? Paul continues to go and advance the gospel, but over and over again, This guy keeps getting into trouble. He keeps getting put in prison. He's shipwrecked. There's all this stuff that just continues to happen. Is God really with Paul or not? So what I love about Paul is from the very beginning of this letter and over and over again, he's not going to deny, he's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's like, yep, here are my chains. Here's what's going on. Here's what my actual situation is. I'm going to be honest about what's happening to me. I'm going to tell you from the very beginning of this letter, this is what is actually going on with me. Because you might be whispering about this behind the scenes. You might hear some people saying, well, is Paul really on the side of God because of all this stuff? But let me just tell you from the very beginning that what you might think is shameful or you might think is actually detracting from the fact that God is on my side. Let me tell you, God is using even that for God's glory. Let me tell you that the thing that you might talk about and whisper behind the scenes and say, well, is Paul really from God because of all this stuff? These chains, you have no idea how much these chains are advancing the gospel. What if we could be that honest with our stuff? What if we could be so honest that we could just say, yeah, you know what? I I, I screwed up. I messed up. I messed up this situation. I'm in some trouble. I've caused these things. But you know what? God is redeeming even that. And from the very beginning, he's saying that it's very evident that God is at work in me even though I have these chains. Paul says, even though I look pretty weak in this situation, You have no idea that I'm actually quite strong. He's writing to this church and he says, I hope that you can discern for yourselves exactly what this means. And he uses a word for discern that was a word that was used to examine a coin. So he's basically saying, I I hope that you would look at this situation, that you would examine it. If you ever take a $100 bill to pay for something, I don't really do it that often, but if you do, you know, they hold it up to the light. And he says, I hope that you would discern, using that word about examining money, I hope that you would discern that even though some people are saying some stuff about me behind the scenes, they may be questioning, here, let me show you how God is using these chains. 
Because one part, there's a palace guard who's watching out over me. And every day, all I do is talk about Jesus to him. And it's maybe driving him crazy, but it's making a difference. And there are people around Rome, early Christians, who are becoming more bold because I just continue to talk about God even though I'm in chains. You have no idea, church, even though this looks like it might not advance the gospel all that much or people might be saying stuff behind the scenes, you have no idea how much God is already redeeming this. So I'm not going to waste time. I'm not going to make this the end of my letter. From the very beginning, let me tell you what might look embarrassing about my life and how God is using it for God's glory and redemption. What if we could do that? Because Paul says that this is preaching. That this will change the world. Shame, I think, still has such a grip on all of our lives, if we're honest. One thing that is studied constantly is recidivism rates in prison, that people get out of prison and they end up going back to prison. The stats are are crazy. Here's some of the stats that that I found. Within three years of release, about two-thirds of prisoners um, were rearrested. Within five years of release, about three-quarters of released prisoners were rearrested. You would think that after being in prison, once you tasted freedom, you would do anything to stay on the outside. You think that you would do all this stuff, and yet it just continues to happen. We've been praying for Raul, Tony's friend, who is getting out of prison. We've been praying for him because it's just hard. And I think part of that is like systems that people get back into, but There's millions, maybe billions of dollars that have been poured into thinking about this. Really smart people trying to think about how to make this better for people who are released from prison. What could be put in place, how we could continue to make this easier for people. And yet, still the stats are unbelievable, right? That within five years, three-fourths of people go back again. I think that has to do with some of the systems that exist in our world, but I think it also has to do with shame. Because once you're an inmate, it's hard, right? And I don't pretend that some of you might not have been in prison at one point or other in my life. I'm not trying to, to shame you more than any other thing, because we've had some people in our church, there was one time a guy just told me, he's like, yeah, I served five years in prison. I was like, no way, are you serious? I just had no, no idea. Don't try to think of who it is. You wouldn't be able to guess. But, um, and it's not just prison sentences that are hard for us to take our chains off, right? And in some ways, for Paul, it's a little bit easier because he can actually identify this. This is something that I can point to. You know, this is embarrassing, but let me tell you how God is already redeeming it. But for many of us, our issue won't be like physical, literal chains, but yet we are still tied up until we're willing to address what's actually going on in our lives. And one thing that I think reveals how you can get to a more joyous attitude is Paul, from the very beginning of this letter, is just saying, I know that you think this is shameful, but God is redeeming even this. He writes to this church, and from the very beginning, he introduces himself in Philippians 1.1. He says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And he's writing this to um, a Roman colony in Philippi. And in Roman colonies, it's likely that 50% of the population were slaves. In Rome, just slavery was how, how it worked. It was one of the reasons why it was such a profitable nation and empire for a long time. So he's writing to this 
group of people that likely about 50% in their midst were slaves. And he says to them from the very beginning, I am a slave for Christ Jesus. You might be defined right now as a slave, as a property of somebody, but ultimately that is not your identity. That you might remain a slave, you might live a slave, unfortunately, and die as a slave, but ultimately... He's saying to this church, I beg of you that you would recognize that your identity is in Jesus Christ. And that changes your perception. That changes who you are in the world. Yes, you can look at my chains. You can look at my status. You can look at things and say, well, he should be embarrassed because of that, or she should be embarrassed because of that. But Paul says, my real honor comes from who God says I am. And that's truly who I am. One of the ways that I get to see this is in lives that, that are transformed. It's one of the reasons why I'm in ministry. I love to see people who, whose lives are transformed by the gospel of Jesus. I get to see it personally in myself as I try to work on sins that can capture me and can, I can keep going back to. One of the ways that I see it just very obviously is in my preaching ministry. One of the great gifts of being a preacher is when something really embarrassing happens to me, I get to say, that's a great sermon story. As long as it's like PG-13 and not worse than that. But when something embarrassing happens to me, I can just say, well, God can use that on Sunday. You know, praise God. And my life is filled with a lot of really awkward moments that have like made their way into sermons at times. And that's not true of just me. In preaching school, one of the first things they teach you is, don't be the hero of the story because nobody wants to hear about the time that St. Brian went and rescued a homeless person. Nobody really wants to, to hear about that situation. What they tell you is, if you preach from your shame, you'll never run out of material. I think that's true for all of us. As we think of ourselves as ministers to people in our communities, in our neighborhoods, if you really want to make a connection with someone, be vulnerable. Be vulnerable about who you are. Let people, what's really, let people know what's really going on with you. Say, you know what, this happened to me, but God is redeeming it. And it's hard for us to live from that perspective. Doctors have studied the effects of shame on the brain. Like they've studied the brain in areas where the brain lights up when, when people are, are going through shameful episodes and experiencing shameful things. And uh, what they say is it affects three areas in your brain. Um, rational thinking, um, the ability to empathize, and it puts the brakes on social engagement. This is what happens when you experience shame. This, I think, is why it's easier for us, especially in today's day and age, instead of like living in community and risking and sometimes being hurt because sometimes community hurts, it's just easier to sit at home and watch Netflix than it is to actually connect with somebody. Because there's always going to be some new show, or there's going to be some new thing. And if you've been in community and you've been burned, it's easier to just be like, all right, I'm out on that. I'm not going to continue to put myself out there. And it feels much easier to just safely peruse social media and like what you want to like instead of entering in. 
And we think that our society is so like progressive and so great and so much better than, than it used to be in the olden days. But all we've done, I think, in some ways is invented new ways to shame each other. I just saw this story on, uh, I'm a baseball fan, so it came up on, on a, a news feed. And it, it had a picture. This, this is the picture if you go to that one, Simon. This girl apparently was dating this baseball player for a long time. You probably can't read it. But she went back through some of her old posts with him. And so she wrote on this one, 26th birthday at the ballpark, wasting another year of my life on a sociopath. It was this moment that was originally happy back in the day, but she went through and edited what she said about him on social media. It was supposed to be his big day. He was pitching in his major league debut, which he had waited for for all of these years. And she went back and posted about five or six different things and re-edited these captions and just totally shamed the guy. He wasted a whole other year on a sociopath. Again, we've kind of just invented new ways to shame each other. And I'm not saying he's not a sociopath. Perhaps he is. But oftentimes the things that we can use so often can be things that we will just use as tools of shame. And we can feel hurt. Many of you likely have had the experience of being bullied on the internet or bullied by somebody who just didn't really care all that much about you and they just would say things to you. The problem is in these cycles, if we don't just deal with these things and talk about what's happening, that's what I think is so great about the ministry of Paul, is from the very beginning of this letter, he's like, this thing is pretty shameful. These chains, can, if you misinterpret them, can be shameful. But let me tell you, from the very beginning, this is what's happening And God is redeeming it. The problem with shame is it causes us to to move in a lot of different ways. There's a psychologist named Gerald May who says this this way. He says that psychoanalysts categorize denial as one of the primitive ways we have of defending against stress. If something is too painful or embarrassing, our minds simply refuse to accept it. Something is just too embarrassing or too painful, or I just don't really want to talk about this. They ha- have what's called the ostrich effect, where you just bury your head in the sand because you just want to pretend like it didn't happen. Paul stands as a counterexample to that. Look at my chains. And look what God is doing through them. God is redeeming even this. Because oftentimes, we can just do this, right? We, we have our chains, we have our issues, and for most of us, it's not like literal chains, but we can have some things that we wish we could probably work on, but we'll just, we'll just show up to the party and we're like, hey, yeah, I'm doing just fine. I'm, I'm doing good. Yeah, this, life is great. My kids are awesome. I'm the perfect parent. My career is just fantastic. I never have a day that I want to, like, strangle somebody. My life is just so good. Or, you know, you, then you like run to the next thing and you're just kind of ducking, ducking behind and you're just kind of hanging out on the wall like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing really good. How are you? Like, I'm, I'm just, just wonderful. Yeah, life, life is good. Like, you have struggles? No way. That's so weird. No, I'm, I'm just standing here because I want to. You know, I'm all right. Just, just let me let me go. And very literally, I think we do this all the time, if we're honest. And the problem is we can start to learn to, like, function from these weird positions, even though they're not healthy or helpful. 
And really, from the very beginning, Scripture says, we are going to do this. We are like Adam and Eve, right? We're going to try to find fig leaves. Instead of owning what's actually happening, we're just going to go behind something and go behind somewhere and just say, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not going to deal with this. And Paul, from the very beginning of this letter, he says, you know what's actually embarrassing or people think is embarrassing for me? Let me just talk about it. And God's redeeming it right here and right now. I'm not going to waste another day too focused on this or trying to get, this, get me down or trying to wonder, you know, well, what, what's Peter saying about this behind the scenes? Is there anybody else? Should I worry about what other people are saying about this? Let me just go ahead and address it right now. Because God is redeeming even this. You should see how the palace guard is convinced. These people, these these Roman soldiers, you should see how the churches around here, how they're gaining a fire because God is redeeming even this. How many more years do you want to spend hiding? We don't use fig leaves anymore, but we can end up in these same positions. When we are called to not live from shame. One of the things that's amazing about the early church is they started calling the cross in a specific way. And the cross, again, it's a tool for for pain, humiliation, and shame. It's supposed to just stamp out people because if you get killed on a cross, that's supposed to be kind of a warning. You know, you shouldn't do this. It's a way that they're telling you you should not live like this. And so it was a shameful way to die. And what's fascinating about the earliest Christians, they started saying that the cross was Jesus's glory. And from the very beginning, the cross, this tool of shame, suffering, and pain, they say that was Jesus's glory. Do you believe that God redeemed the cross? Do you believe that God redeemed Paul's time in jail? Then you think God can redeem that job that you lost? Do you think God can redeem that sin that you're just trying to push below the surface that you just don't want to talk to anybody about? Paul, from the very beginning of this letter, says, let me just be honest about what's actually happening and what God is doing through it. May we all understand that God can redeem our shame. One thing I feel that needs to be addressed is it's a hot thing in our country today as people are all talking about the Kavanaugh trial and whatever you think about what what happened or didn't happen as was described in that trial. I need to just say to anybody who has experienced sexual abuse, violence, or any kind of abuse. That is not something to be ashamed of. And if you want to talk to me, I'm no professional counselor, but I would love to talk with you and connect you with with people who could help you better than I could. But unfortunately, those kinds of situations can wreck lives if you don't honestly talk about them. So if you need somebody to talk to about something like that, just please Let me know, because shame isn't just like the mistakes that we've made. Unfortunately, shame can also happen to us. 
But for all of us who've experienced shame on any kind of level, it's a wide spectrum. May we be willing to say, God can redeem even this. A very succinct way to put this, I believe, is Satan calls us by our sin. God calls us by our name. That shame makes you think that you are a failure. You are a failure, never, ever going to get this right again. God says, perhaps, perhaps you have failed, but let me call you forward because I can redeem even that. We're going to sing a song that we've been singing the last few weeks, Who You Say I Am. And maybe as we sing this song, just think about the fact that God loves you even in your time of weakness and your vulnerability. And maybe you just think about who God says truly who you are. For the early Christian communities, those who were sometimes slaves, sometimes Gentiles, this group of misfits together for the outcasts, the bullied, and the shamed, they centered themselves on the love of Christ, and it literally changed the world. May we understand that even in our sin and shame, God can redeem even that. And as we sing about who God says we are, let's truly think about who God says we are. Let's stand and worship together.